Today's episode of the Woj Pod is brought to you by Freshly. Getting a quality dinner on the table every night doesn't have to be so hard. Freshly chefs send you delicious, freshly prepared meals so you can eat better without any of the work, no cooking or cleanup required. Delivered to your door fresh, their meals are ready when you are. Freshly chefs and nutritionists make sure that every meal is nutritious and made with high-quality, all-natural ingredients. So now you can come home late and still have a delicious chef-cooked meal waiting for you. Try Freshly, and you'll see what it's like to put zero effort into making dinner. Go to Freshly.com slash Woj to get $25 off your first order of six meals. That's $25 off plus free shipping to Freshly.com slash Woj. Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. Here with me in sunny California, ESPN front office insider, Bobby Marks. Bobby, what's up, man? How are you? Good. One of the great podcast backdrops ever <laughs> uh, in Santa Monica, the uh, Pacific in the background. Wow. Game one last night, Bobby. You know, it's funny for all the talk of everyone's, maybe there's some fatigue on Golden State, Cleveland like one for the ages. It sure was. And if there was a game to be stolen, that was the game right there. You, you've got it. When you're Cleveland, you have to win the close ones because they're not all going to be close. You're going to get blown out by them. You've got to win the close ones against Golden State to have any chance to win four. And you can't give them another five minutes in overtime and be with that Warriors team. And um, that ending in regulation, we'll be talking about that for a long time here as far as how that game ended. Let's go to... The charge block call, LeBron, Kevin Durant. How did the officials handle it, the replay? What did you see there? I saw that Kenny Maurer, who was under the basket, made the uh, call of a charge. I saw that even before he we went to the replay that LeBron James was clearly out of the restricted area. The officials felt that he was close enough to warrant a uh, replay. And when they went to the replay, they determined, yes, he was outside of the restricted area, but that also triggers them to overturn the uh, the charge to a, to a block. I, I agree on the call of that it was a, a block. I, I do. I don't agree on that it should have went to replay because I felt James was out of that restricted area far enough to warrant that. And, of course, the George Hill missed free throw with you know, four seconds left. They still have a chance there. I mean, a ch- you know, and you look back at it, what an offensive rebound by J.R. Smith. Like, in traffic, goes up, grabs it, and, um, you know, the most J.R. Smith moment ever. Dribbles the ball out and runs the clock out. I think the only thing worse would have been him to score a basket on the Warriors' end. <laughs> <laughs> if he would have dribbled it. I mean, it was a, you know, and it's amazing. You know, George Hill is an 80% free throw shooter. Makes the first one no problem and short rims the, the it really second short arm the second one and um and it was a great rebound and you know Durant was close to him I mean he, he probably could have went up for it and, and laid up laid it in yeah. and dribbled it out and he you saw the replay where he said uh, I thought we were up one it was obvious <laughs> it was obvious he was not dribbling out for space it was he even if he didn't mouth that it was obvious what happened and you know like like you said does he get the shot up and off. We'll never know, but it's just inexcusable. Like there's no, in that moment, you know, that's inexcusable in game 34 at Sacramento of a regular season, but game one of the finals to not be aware is, um, you know, for Cleveland, like they've got to get up in a series and grab home court back from 
them. And you wasted 51 points from LeBron on the road. You, you're going to get blown out of games in the series against that Golden State team. And you had to have it. And they're going to have to live with that in Cleveland for a long time. Yeah. And we don't know when, um, you know, maybe game two, Andre Iguodala returns. Now you had me had a missed opportunity with Iguodala off the court. You had some good moments from some of your role players. Uh, Larry Nance Jr. Uh, gave you some, uh, some quality minutes and, uh, to have LeBron duplicate a 50, I mean, who knows, it's LeBron James, but to duplicate another performance, which that's basically what the blueprint of how they're going to need to win a game will be, uh, will be hard for, uh, on Sunday. And what James has done in these playoffs is, I mean, we keep saying it over and over. Steve Kerr said it, who played with Michael Jordan. No one's ever seen anybody play basketball like this. And, no one ever has. No, and the to, to be able to play at his age, it seems like he's getting better, if that's possible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we've said this before. Like, there's nobody to compare him to among his peers, and there's really one player to compare him to in history, and that's Michael. But when you look at his draft class, and it, it just gives you context of his age and what he's doing, they're all at the end. Dwayne Wade is at the end. Dwayne's older than LeBron. They're in the same draft class, but Dwayne had been in college for – Red shirt year and then two years. Carmelo Anthony is closer to the end. And, you know, one of, it was obviously one of the great draft classes ever. And LeBron, not only is he not at the end, I don't even want to say he hasn't started his decline. He's gotten better. It defies the only player in really NBA history, you think, or maybe sports history, who really got better in his 30s. Steve Nash went from a very good player to a Hall of Famer in his 30s. People always compare Barry Bonds. That was different. Uh, why, why his production changed. Uh, but for LeBron to do what he's doing is, um, you kind of kept waiting in his thirties. There'll be a point where he has to, does he need to go play with somebody or guys who, where he doesn't have to be the best player, where he could be the second best player. He's going to be the best player on the court until he's. Late 30s? Mid, I mean, uh, 37, 38, will he still be the best player in the league? And that's what will be his, uh, the, the question that he will ask himself this summer is, do I want to go through another four, four or five years in Cleveland, basically trying to put this team on, um, you know, on my shoulders here? That, that's the big question. And usually when a player is 33 years old and you go into free agency, you know, I wrote about Chris Paul as, as far as, you know, you be careful on the back end, you know, if you're paying a guy 45, 46 million when he's 36, 37 years old. And I don't have to write that, <laughs> I don't have to write about, about LeBron James. I would, I would have, uh, I would sleep okay at night if I had to give him, you know, $200 million in a, in a, you know, in a new contract. Yeah. And I think you mentioned Chris Paul. I think when, the Rockets made that deal for Paul with the Clippers and knew that they would re-sign him in free agency. Like, I think they made a conscious decision that we're going to have to live with that $46, $47 million a year salary when he's not nearly the player anymore in his late 30s. But we're going to make a run at it now. We want to win a championship now, and we'll deal with it later. We'll see how that plays out in their contract talks here for free agency, but... Chris Paul didn't turn down $200 million from the Clippers because he thought he was going to end up taking that somehow the Rockets were going to talk him into saving them luxury tax money down the road. It's not, I just, I don't imagine it playing out that way. Well, I agree. And I, I I wrote, when I wrote about it, I said it was more like a business arrangement that this was the arrangement where I will opt in. I will probably, I will take $10 million less in 2017-18. You will be able to go out and get a player like PJ Tucker with your mid-level exception where you wouldn't have been able to. 
um, the roster stays intact. Remember, if Chris was going to go there as a, to sign as a free agent, that would have had to been a, a, a complete gut job to create the room. Um, and now it's time for me to to make up what I lost um, from this past year. Yeah, and, and that sign and trade last summer, or last, I guess, early summer, with the Clippers and Rockets, which was pretty novel idea um, at the time. No one saw it coming. We may see that as a blueprint this summer because there's a lack of salary cap space that the sign and trade, I've already gotten the sense in talking to general managers, agents, that they're all going to try to be creative here to create some player movement and create salary for players like a DeAndre Jordan, perhaps, or any number of other guys, that the sign and trade might be the way to get your guy paid in somewhere he wants to be where there's no salary cap space. You're right. And we saw that, you know, the news, the, the, the CBA that came into effect in 2011 and now, you know, the, this the one in 2017 really tried to put a limit on signing trades. In, in the past, as you know, um, players, it was basically almost like re-signing with your own team where you can add an, an extra year. You can get the higher percentage increase. We saw that in 2010 with LeBron and Chris Bosh when they did the signing trades from Cleveland and Toronto. They got a, an extra year, which actually they opted, <laughs> they actually opted out of, and both teams kind of getting draft picks back for it. Or now, the signing trades are are tough because a the receiving team now gets hard capped. So now you are, if you are a team trying to go out and get Demarcus Cousins, um, let's say for Washington, for example, um, you're hard capped and you can't go above 129 million dollars. Um, we saw it last year with the Clippers and Danilo Gallinari. That was a the first time we've seen a signing trade work um, in a long time, and you're right. We and just talking with uh, teams and agents, the lack of cap flexibility will probably see te- players who are free agents try to force some type of signing trade. We might even see it possibly with LeBron, but differently, we might see the, the Chris Paul blueprint opting in and trying to navigate it um, to find a new home there. Right. Like if, if hypothetically LeBron wanted to go to Houston. Sign and trade's really the only way outside of Houston, literally having to gut their roster to create the space and to not, I mean, and maybe they would. The one thing about Daryl Morey and Houston is they're, they're not afraid to be creative and to find ways to move the pieces around the board, but, but it would take, you, you documented it in the ESPN.com piece, the postseason Rockets piece that it, it would take a lot of work to do that. You, you said something too about the players opting out of that final year of the deal. I think there was a belief that when they did the CBA that the owners wanted to create incentives for players to stay where they were. And I think they really thought being able to do the five-year deal where you are was a tremendous advantage over being able to only sign for four elsewhere. And it's turned out to, there's a frustration among guys, I think, because it's meant nothing. In fact, it's just the opposite. Guys are looking to get back into the market quicker. They're turning down that longer-term security and having that fifth year, being able to pay a guy for a fifth year, it's become no advantage. And I don't think they saw that coming. You're right. And I think you'll probably see that this summer where um, if there are players who want to get back into the market in 2020 when the cap goes higher and the market resets because the contracts from 2016 will start to come off, uh, you will probably see – two-year contracts. You might see a contract like Kevin Durant who would sign a three-year contract with, with Golden State with a player option for the third year, and that gets him back in the market in 2020, 2021. Well, Bobby, as you know, 
Buying tickets online for sports and concerts has never been easier thanks to SeatGeek. They've created an amazing app and website that makes ticket buying easier than it's ever been. They pull all the tickets available on other sites into one place so you never miss a deal. And more importantly, you're not wasting time. You can even set alerts for upcoming events and they'll let you know if the ticket prices fall. And even better, every ticket on SeatGeek is ranked based on value so you can immediately find underpriced seats. And before you buy, you can use SeatGeek's detailed maps to see the view from your seat. And they never surprise you with big fees on the checkout page. So now here's the best part about SeatGeek for all of you out there listening to the Woj Pod. My listeners who make their first SeatGeek purchase get a $20 rebate. And to get it, all you've got to do is download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, then enter promo code Woj, W-O-J. SeatGeek will then send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. It does not get any easier than that. So download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code Woj today. Bobby, back to game one for a moment. Will J.R. Smith be able to, I don't want to say get his head back in the series, because I'm not sure it was there. Do they lose him in this series? Is he going to, can he handle what's coming in these 48 hours between games one and two? I think the first five minutes of the game on Sunday, game two, will determine if we've lost J.R. Smith for the series. <laughs> um, and that's going to be up to Ty Lue and the coaching staff to figure it out if, if J.R. goes 0 for 3 or 0 for 4, um, does not look into the game to pull him right away. But we'll, we'll have an idea within that first quarter if, if J.R. Smith is lost for the game. Yeah, and, and they don't have options. And that's the thing is they, they're going to have to play him probably anyway. And, and maybe if there's anyone who can just move on from something like this, um, maybe it would consume somebody else. I think there is maybe a quality to him that might actually allow him to just go out and, and keep jacking shots and, and make some. But that's a hard one to forgive. That I think – if they feel like they could have been in this series and LeBron's a pretty loyal teammate. He's been really good to JR. He's been probably saved JR's career in a lot of ways. I don't know how you get over that one. It, it is hard to forgive and players don't. I mean, what was, I mean, I'll go back revisionist history here and, you know, back in 2003, and this is a little bit different when we lost to San Antonio in, in six games, there was a moment where we were up in the fourth quarter pretty significantly and Byron Scott, you know, left Kerry Kittles on, uh, on the bench and did not bring him back in the game. And that, that moment then we wound up losing had a carryover effect to the following season where there was such a bitter distaste with our own players that eventually led to the downfall of Byron Scott there. And it's totally different circumstances, but Players have a long-term memory when it comes to situations like that, especially when you are in a finals and the game is right there to be won. The backdrop to these finals, Bobby, is the Brian Colangelo story in Philadelphia. Uh, Zach Lowe and I reported on late Thursday night that the ownership is seriously considering dismissing him as president of basketball operations by the time this airs. There could be some finality to their investigation, or this may continue into next week, but it won't continue much longer. And what we've, listen, people saw on Twitter, there were a lot of connecting of the dots to telephone number and and some verbiage that seemed to make it clear his wife may have been involved in some of these Twitter postings or maybe all of them. And that has been 
as we reported, that's been central to their probe. And I know that we know that Colangelo has talked to ownership, the investigators, the people who he has to answer to on this now about that possibility. But also, it is really hard to separate a team executive and a family member. You're going to be accountable for these. If indeed it was her, you're going to be accountable for that. And I think there's no question right now that Colangelo is fighting to save his job. If indeed a family member was responsible for over a very long period, a lot of Twitter postings that divulged organizational information, medical information, personal shots at people inside, outside the organization, including their superstar player, Joel Embiid. Is there any way that Brian Colangelo can function in that job going forward if this is what happened? No, there there isn't. And that's why I expect there to be some type of closure here relatively soon. The situation in Philadelphia is one of probably the things we've never seen before. We're, we're in uncharted waters here, right? And there are, uh, there were many a times in Brooklyn or in New Jersey where post game trade deadline, um, after, you know, based on injuries that I would use my wife as a confidant, family confidant. But I have the trust that my wife is not going to divulge what I am telling her, trade secrets, player injuries. This situation, and if we do find out it is his wife by chance, the information was coming from Brian Colangelo. So he's as guilty as she is, not for giving it to her because that's a husband-wife relationship, but for it to be out in the public eye here. And Philadelphia is going into – I mean we know what their situation is this summer. I mean they they have an opportunity to land a marquee free agent. I think is less impactful for what the relationships are outside the organization, free agency. It, to me, it's much more impactful for them. More important than LeBron James or Paul George, anybody they're going after, Joel Embiid's the, that's the most important person in this if you're the Sixers. That's the superstar they do have. And I think it would impact how he feels about Philly and ownership and the GM a lot more than what – I don't know that LeBron cares that much who the GM is. Like he'll – I mean I think he would prefer it's a good one, but he'll go where he wants to go. He'll do what he wants to do, and they'll move pieces around later if they feel like they they want to. So, But I – of all the things in this, I mean, two things. One, if this was going on, I could see if this was a one-night, one-time thing where there was just a one-time uh, rapid fire of comments and something over one night. This went on for over a year, well over a year, and almost from the time he was hired in Philadelphia. And the kind of information that was getting out there, if you were – a general manager, you were an organization, you were a PR department, and you saw some account had what you knew was very privileged, accurate information about a number of things, you'd be calling NBA security and saying, and I've had other GMs say this to me, you'd be calling NBA security and saying, who is this? We have to find out who this is. It would have lingered that long. It would have been dealt with. And then the fact that they shut down the day that the ringer called without even telling them what the names of the accounts were. I think the case that Colangelo was making in there is that I didn't know this was going on. I, I wasn't aware of these and, I, and that I was not behind because that's the next logical step. Were you encouraging someone else to put these things out? Ignorance may not be a defense in this. And that's giving the ultimate benefit of the doubt, which I'm not sure everybody 
may be willing to do. But the only chance I think he's had in this, and as someone around there said to me, like there were three scenarios here. One was he was doing it, two was somebody close to him was doing it, or three, this was an elaborate setup by somebody else. It doesn't appear to be three. And I don't know that he can keep his job if it's the other two. You're right. Going back to the information that was coming out, I mean, I actually read the the article again this morning and some of the tweets. And the disturbing parts were, of course, the Joel Embiid criticism, Markel Fultz, who you sacrificed a lot for to acquire, and which could go down as a career-changing trade based on Jason Tatum right now. And the and the uh, Jalil Okafor information regarding his medicals, yeah, that is damning here. And as I said, we're going to need to get where yeah. I mean, we're four weeks from free agency and three weeks from the draft. I mean, there's got to be some closure. Today's episode of the Woj Pod is brought to you by Full Sail University. Full Sail University combines hands-on learning, immersive projects, and faculty with real-world experience to prepare students for life in the media industry. And for the Dan Patrick School of Sportscasting, they brought in some of sports media's best to be a part of this program. Longtime ESPN producer and multi-Emmy winner Gus Ramsey is heading up the program, and sportscasting pros such as Sage Steele, Jay Harris, Bill Simmons, and many more are involved. Students will learn sportscasting inside and out, on camera, behind the camera, podcasting, radio, interviewing, and everything in between. At Full Sail University's Dan Patrick School of Sportscasting, you can earn a bachelor's degree in about half the time, as short as 20 months. And you can choose to earn your degree online or on Full Sail's campus in Orlando, Florida. To learn more about Full Sail University's Dan Patrick School of Sportscasting, go to www.fullsail.edu slash woj. For Colangelo, he does not have currency built up in Philadelphia with their fans. And I think that spoke to, if that was indeed his wife or a family member or him, the tone of those was the frustration he's had with how popular Sam Hinkie remained. Even I think that surprised Colangelo when he came in that Hinkie had such a loyal following among Philadelphia fans, among their media, their uh, bloggers, um, and that he was seen as somebody who, benefited from nepotism and getting that job. Jerry Colangelo had become a figurehead for the organization and they made Brian the general manager and it's never really been accepted in large part in that market. Then the, when he finally tried to put a stamp on the program, on the team, the Fultz trade, as you said, the early returns are, it's a disaster. Um, it might get better, but he probably won't be around to see that. And so there might be a different GM in a different market with different circumstances who could survive this. But when a fan base and maybe even people in the organization believe that there was a different set of rules that helped allow you to get this job and then you survive this, I just think that's – it's a perfect storm. And that's a reason why ownership is really seriously thinking about firing him and why those in his organization are bracing for that and wondering who's coming in next. The interesting thing, too, was is that Brian was out of the league for three years, I want to say, from the time he left uh, Toronto. And, and what I've learned is from being out of the league for a couple of years is that you do a lot of reflection as far as if you ever did get another opportunity somewhere, 
what things you would change and how you would do it differently. And, and you're almost more grateful because you do have a second opportunity. This is one of 30 jobs here. And it seems like nothing has changed from the time he was in Toronto to the time he is right now. Yeah. And I, and I thought initially there was a humbleness about getting another chance. And I thought it's funny when, when he was introduced and he did all he could to distance himself from the fact that his father they very tried very hard to sell the idea that it was a legitimate process and he was the best candidate and he got the job and sort of, I think, ran away a little bit from the fact that his father was there. And I always thought he should have done just the opposite and came in and said, listen, like my father and I had a lot of success together in Phoenix. We built great teams. You know, we, we came pretty close to winning the West and maybe winning a championship. I learned a lot from him. I've been executive of the year twice. I'm embracing working with him. We've had, we're going to try to take that extra step here and win it instead of trying to distance because people would have, it was the elephant in the room and he should have just, I thought, embraced it. I think he made it harder on himself by trying to suggest that what his last name was had nothing to do with him getting the job because Brian's got a very good resume and he's built really good teams. And, and I think another thing for Brian too, at times was he wanted credit for the success in Toronto and, some of the verbiage toward Masai Ujiri, who was his successor in Toronto, who was also somebody he hired years earlier in Toronto was in scouting, that he wanted credit for having drafted DeMar DeRozan, traded for Kyle Lowry, hired Dwayne Casey. And I always thought, as time passed after he left Toronto, I thought Brian got credit for that. But like as one executive said to me, this is what can happen when you are focused on getting credit versus doing the job. And if... This is how it ends that you're trying to convince 100 or 200 random people on Twitter who don't really represent the masses and like, well, where was the risk reward? What if you convince those 150 people you're the greatest ever and everything you did was right? Like, so what? What does it matter? And, and now, uh, it's going to be hard for him to have a position like this ever again as, as we come out of this, whether he keeps, the, you know, if he's fired, if he's let go, if there's a resignation, there's a breach of trust there that, boy, it's going to be hard for anyone to accept. And the fallout, too, there's a lot of people in that front office that left good jobs to go to Philadelphia. And we don't know what the fallout will be. And, and we don't we don't hear about that often. I mean, um, wh- whatever happens, if there is a new front office or a new general manager, what happens to those type of people? And you know, I, I saw it in, in New Jersey, and it was totally different circumstances. Rod Thorne did not have a burner account, or his wife did not have a burner account. But yeah, we went through it in 2010, where Rod um, announced that he was leaving the organization, I think a week before the draft, but still conducted the draft. And then we went through free agency without a general manager. And that's why I, I, I said the window opens now, and it closes pretty shortly, because you'll have to have something in place before that. They've got six draft picks. You know, two, a, a tenth pick, they've got the twenty, you know, six pick, four second rounders. This is not Detroit where you are, you know, in a search for a new general manager and it's basically a ready to made team and you don't have a first round pick. I mean, you are, I mean, the clock is already, the clock started when this article came out on, um, on Tuesday night. I think this will be resolved sooner than later. And I do think, I, I know there's an urgency in Philadelphia to, make a decision and, and get moving because it's hanging. It's not only hanging over the organization, it's hanging over the league right now. And, um, and Adam Silver expressed it at his press conference before game one, his frustration that this has become 
but this is the NBA. Like this is in a lot of ways, it was the, the NBA has been built. It's a lot of its popularity has come through Twitter and the fact that Joel Embiid ends up in the middle of a Twitter controversy or as a, I don't know, as a victim is the word, but, uh, is pretty interesting. Today's episode of the Woj Pod is also sponsored by Mattress Firm. Everyone knows how important stretching is before an event. So does Mattress Firm. Except it's your dollar. Your budget stretches further at Mattress Firm. So shop at America's Neighborhood Mattress Store. It's a true home run. They're the head coaches when it comes to mattress expertise. But know this, they are more than mattress experts. They have a game plan that helps you transform your mattress into a bed. From adjustable bases and sheets to headboards and bedroom decor, they have you literally and figuratively covered up like your favorite cornerback. Go to mattressfirm.com to see what deals are happening. They even offer you a 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120-night low-price guarantee so you know you paid the perfect price. Talk about a one-two punch. Score big with a perfect bed. Head to mattressfirm.com and use the code PODCAST10 for 10% off. The code is only valid through June 5th, so don't miss out. Get the play-by-play on how you can monumentally improve your sleep today, tonight, and tomorrow only at Mattress Firm. Bobby, a couple quick hits before we're out of here. Orlando hiring Steve Clifford is head coach. I think it is a, to me, a tremendous fit. He's been there before. He knows the organization. And Clifford's a program builder. You look at what he inherited in Charlotte, 21-22 game improvement his first year in the playoffs. You know, in the playoffs his third year, won almost 50 games, took Miami to seven games. And when he's had players... And he's had a little bit of a bench. And you look at how bad his bench was two years ago in Charlotte. It was like a D-League bench. And then this year, combination of his health, some other factors, I think that team probably underachieved a little bit. But, yeah, I think for Orlando, who's had five coaches in the last seven years, Jeff Waltman, John Hammond, are dying for stability in that position. This is their first hire as a head coach. I thought they got the best guy in the market. They did. And you hit it right on the head, stability. Uh, you look at the track record and John Hammond, Jeff Weltman weren't there when, you know, Scott Skiles was, was hired and Jacques Vaughn was hired and Frank Vogel was hired. And that's, that's three coaches in the last, you know, five or six years. And that's, you know, six times to the lottery. And, um, I, I think the Steve Clifford hire is the biggest free agent addition that Orlando will make besides deciding on what to do with Aaron, Aaron Gordon here. <laughs> Um, you look at his track record in Charlotte taking over a team that, you know, was one of the worst in French and NBA history at one time, getting him to multiple playoffs. And as you said, molding that, that group here. Um, there's some work to do, of course. I mean, there's a reason why they're in the, they're in the, in, in the lottery and there's a need for a point guard. That's probably a priority for, um, Orlando, but, um, and I looked at what Jeff and, um, and John did this year was, and I, and I wrote about it for this weekend is that they looked at it as almost like a final audit. They didn't make many roster moves. They basically, it's almost when you're a new boss is coming in, you, you retain all the employees and you give it a year to figure out who's, who fits and who, yeah. who doesn't. And now they have an idea and now they have a coach that they know will be there for the long time and, Never want to say no brainer when it comes to hiring a coach because things certainly change, but that's, that's as close to as a no brainer as it, as it, as it comes. Yeah. And, you know, Detroit job remains open there. You know, it's the fanskis running a coaching search. They may also be in the market for a general manager. Uh, Dwayne Casey, you know, interviewed on 
Thursday in Detroit. I think he's certainly the most high-profile candidate available out there. And I think for Casey, it's going to be – he's got the ability to here to be picky. And and it might be hard for Case when you think about his – this is a guy who was exiled as a college coach, went to, had to go to Japan for five years. You're right. Uh, with Dwayne Casey, he can be – you know pick and choose his job. His track record in Toronto the last five or six years, what he's been able to do with that team in, in this year – uh, has earned him the right to, if he wants to sit out a year and maybe come do broadcasting with us yeah, <laughs> or I media mean, yeah. or, uh, he, he's, he's owed six and a half million dollars off. He can case go sit on a beach somewhere, go home to Seattle. And I think his inclination is to work. He's a worker and he works at it. And, and there's always a, if I sit out a year, will they forget about me? And no one's going to forget about Dwayne Casey. I think he'll have his pick of jobs, whether, he goes forward with Detroit or waits and see what opens next year. But I do think that is the natural inclination of coaches that if I'm out, they're going to forget about me. But I think when you step back from case and look at what he did in Toronto, look at the success beyond this postseason where they got swept. And another great advantage for Casey is he's easy to work with and general managers and team presidents, they want a coach who they can get along with and who can be a part of a bigger part of the community of the organization of there's a lot of asks of a head coach beyond just the court and there's no and I don't want to say easygoing guy because he's an intense competitive guy but but he gets along with everybody and and I think that only makes him more uh, attractive uh, as a candidate because that's not the case with everybody and some coaches this year and processes there were a lot of questions about can this guy get along can we work with him and nobody has those questions about Casey, which I think makes him he, – he's going to have almost whatever he wants next year if if the coaching carousel has stopped for this year and it's only Detroit or sit out a year. And he'll be at the top of the list. We had – how many head coaching openings this year? Eight, nine? What is the next opening going to be? And it will – you know, you, you're almost in that wait-and-see mode, and maybe instead of waiting – do I just jump at the first uh, uh, opportunity if presented? Uh, and Detroit would be – Detroit's interested because it's a veteran team that's ready to win now if you mold it the right way with Blake and ready Andre, to, ready, Reggie Jackson. Ready to win what? Like the maybe if they're healthy, they're a six seed, a five, five seed. Like it's a team that's sort of – they can be in the playoffs every year um, if healthy, but – there's not great upside to that roster. You're not getting into that Philadelphia, Boston, probably Toronto, even to Toronto. Yeah. Um, we can maybe start talking about Indiana a little bit. Yeah. Um, you are in that Miami territory, yeah. probably Charlotte, maybe even, um, yeah. with a new coach there, but you're in that six to nine range. And, but that's the investment you made when you did the, you did the Blake Griffin trade, um, you know, back around the trade deadline. Yep. Uh, Bobby, thanks as always for, Stopping in. We'll, uh, we'll see you soon, man. Sounds good. Great. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to my guest today, ESPN front office insider Bobby Marks. Remember, you can subscribe and listen to new and archived episodes of the pod wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Apple or wherever else you get your shows. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsors, Freshly, Full Sail University, Mattress Firm, and SeatGeek. Be sure to support them the way they support us here at the Woj Pod. We'll catch you next time.